morning. Let's begin. I'd like to pray and open our time of communion together. Um, if you didn't grab a, an individually wrapped package of communion elements, there is a basket out there and you can grab one as we get ready to start. So let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for the uh, time that we have together this morning. We come thinking about your death, your son's death for us. We thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for us. We want to receive the benefits of that great sacrifice and enjoy them. And so we pray that as we take these elements in just a few minutes that we would remember well what you've done for us and that we would experience the benefits of the great salvation that you have achieved for us. So we thank you for saving us. We thank you for loving us so much that you would send your son to die for us. That is great love indeed. So thank you, Father, for your love for us. You've shown it to us uh, beyond question, beyond doubt. So help us to rest in the love that you have provided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we think about communion this morning. We think about these elements, this bread, this juice. We are to be reminded of Jesus' death, His broken body, His shed blood, His death, ultimately. And I, I want to draw your attention this morning as we think about these things to John chapter 6, some difficult words that Jesus spoke that ran a lot of His followers off, ultimately. Uh, he said some hard things that they didn't understand at the time. Not even his, his own faithful followers understood what he was saying. But you and I now can read these words and understand them and not be offended or run off by them. So let me remind you of some of those words. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so right there in the midst of this long message that Jesus gave to his disciples and many others listening on, he identifies himself metaphorically as bread that provides life. And the metaphor there, what does it mean for him to be the bread of life? Well, he invites people to come to him and he invites people to consume him. And that's simply a metaphor for believing in him. It's a very vivid image, putting something in your mouth and consuming it, eating it, taking it inside yourself. That's the imagery that Jesus is working with here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We have our eternal hunger and our eternal thirst satisfied when we trust in Jesus. Going down a little ways, Jesus then said later on in this same uh, teaching, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Then a couple of verses later in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so Jesus is bread, and He gives bread. And He's talking about giving Himself to be baked, if you will, to be broken and to be ultimately consumed. 
not only in death, but by his followers as we trust in him, as we receive him into ourselves. The climax of this conversation, verses 53 to 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So you can perhaps see why the Jewish people listening to him would be so offended that so many of them would leave after he said these things. It's one of those issues of taking Jesus literally when he obviously intended to be taken figuratively. He was speaking metaphorically. But if you take him literally, well, that's a problem, not only for Jews, but for anybody. To eat the flesh of the man Jesus would be problematic, literally. And we don't do that today. That's not what this is about. That's not what eating this cracker and drinking this juice is about. It is a figurative expression. It's a symbol that has significance and meaning for us. That as we we take this cracker bread thing, (laughs) we put it in our mouth and we consume it, we are to remember, Paul tells us, we're to remember what Jesus has done for us. That he voluntarily, willingly gave himself as bread to be broken and then to be consumed. We express our faith as we put this in our mouth. We express our faith as we drink this blood. We remind ourselves that it's the broken body of Jesus, His death, His suffering, His sacrifice, His blood poured out on the altar of sacrifice that pays for our sins, provides us with this eternal life that Jesus is talking about. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to remember that the life that we have today that will last forever is all because he gave up his life, because he volunteered to experience death, a death he didn't deserve to to experience in any way, shape, or form. And so as we come to a time of remembrance, where we look at these symbols, where we feel these symbols, we taste them in our mouths, we need to remember. We need to remember Jesus' death for us. And so I want you to take just a few minutes to remember, but I want you to remember in a particular way. I want you to go ahead and open this up, if you haven't already, and hold the little cracker in your hand. Feel it in between your fingers. And remember the very real, very historical, very tangible body of Jesus, the man who died for you, And I actually want you to take it in your fingers and break it and be reminded of how Jesus was broken for you.
Take just a few minutes as Janice plays and reflect on that reality for yourself. Remember these words from the night that Jesus was betrayed from Luke's gospel. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this bread together. Reading from Matthew's Gospel. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's drink in remembrance and drink in anticipation. Pray with me, would you, one more time. Father, thank you for the great gift that you have given to us, the great sacrifice of your Son. It's incalculable what you've done for us. And as we take these elements, these symbols into our body, we are helped. We are encouraged by the very tangible nature of what you've done. Your son took on flesh for us. Your son took on limitations for us. And ultimately, your son was willing to be harmed, to be abused, to be broken, to be murdered, to pay a debt that he didn't accrue, but we have. Thank you, Father, for the lavish nature of your love, that you would love us to such a degree and in such a way. Help us to remember well. Help us to live our days differently because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah 5, 2 through 5. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can come together and be one in these trying times, Lord. And today as we talk about peace, let peace just be our motto and our lifeblood through these crazy times. That no matter what happens in our world, with our government, our towns, our communities, our lives, your peace is always there. We thank you and we give you the praise. Amen. So why Bethlehem? Why did God choose to do it this way? We've all sung the carol throughout our lives, O little town of Bethlehem, and we've all known since childhood that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But why does it matter that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Why does the prophet Micah, hundreds of years before the event, announce that the Messiah would come from this little town of Bethlehem? Who cares? Why does it matter? Why is it important where the Messiah would be born? To get our bearings to answer this question, perhaps, we must begin with the original announcement in the book of Micah, a passage of Scripture that we probably don't often turn to except during Christmas time. And so I invite you to open a Bible and turn there, if you would like, to the book of Micah. It's among those minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. If you can find the book of Jonah... It's right after that. If you've hit the book of Nahum, you've gone a little too far. The book of Micah is just a little seven-chapter collection of prophecies from a man named Micah, whose life we know very little about. But we are given, at the very beginning of the book, his time frame, when he was active among the people of Judah. Micah was a prophet called by God to speak to the southern kingdom of Judah, to the Jews of the southern kingdom. And we read these words in Micah 1.1. The word of Yahweh that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he ministered sometime during the reign of three kings, but that doesn't really help us that much. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were three consecutive kings of Judah who ruled over the course of about a hundred years or so. And 
he was somewhere in the midst of that. What we know about these three kings is that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, 2 Kings 15.34. And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, 2 Kings 18.3-8. But that middle king, Ahaz, he was a bad boy. He did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, 2 Kings 16.2-4. And it's my suspicion that Micah's ministry largely was contained and focused during Ahaz's reign, because the book of Micah is largely a bunch of announcements of judgment and God's wrath being poured out. Merry Christmas to you all. But what's so fascinating about the book of Micah is that As Micah continues to just announce judgment after judgment, God is going to judge you for your sins. Out of nowhere, it seems, he announces these bright, shining glimpses of hope. There's no transition. He just announces God's going to judge you, God's going to judge you, and he's going to save you. It's back to back, and it can be hard to get our bearings in the book. None of his sermons, if you will, are dated. This is a collection of his oracles, probably given over many years in different situations, and they might not even be in chronological order. So it's hard to pin down exactly when he's addressing whom and what he's addressing specifically. But with our passage this morning, we're going to look at one of those bright glimpses of hope in Micah chapter 5. But it comes in a time that it seems we actually can date with some measure of certainty. If you've noticed my sermon title and you're familiar with the classic work of literature, A Tale of Two Cities, then you might be wondering what that has to do with the book of Micah. Micah 5 begins with an announcement of hope. And it really is an announcement of hope in the worst of times. If you remember reading A Tale of Two Cities, perhaps in high school, you may remember the opening words of the book. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And so here we find Micah announcing hope to the people of Judah in the worst of times. Let's see what he has to say in these first two verses of Micah chapter 5. Let's just start with verse 1. Micah 5 verse 1, and we'll see the worst of times that he's talking about. He says... Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now there's some figurative language there, and it's difficult to pin down exactly what's going on, but it's likely that with the mention of siege here, we're talking about 701 B.C. That's an important year that you should all remember as very important in your history. I'm just kidding. It's not. But it is an important year in the Bible when an Assyrian king named Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, came to lay siege to Jerusalem. His armies came to surround the city, and his armies taunted the Jews who were there, the military forces who were there on the wall. Perhaps you remember the story. It's recorded for us twice in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, and in the book of 2 Kings. While King Hezekiah was reigning over Judah, it seems that the Jewish people are in big trouble. Assyria had already come 20 years earlier and wiped out the northern kingdom, Israel. 
exiled them, scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire, and now he's continuing his jaunt through the land, and he comes to Jerusalem. God is going to deal with that situation, if you remember the story. But here we see Micah the prophet stepping up, and it seems like, as we read these words, that Micah doesn't really know what the outcome is going to be. If you remember the rest of the story, it ends well for Jerusalem. God shows up, and Sennacherib hears a rumor, and he has to leave. He abandons Jerusalem, and he goes back home. He never attacks the city, so the people are safe. But here, Micah steps up, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, and he announces to the people, you need to get ready for the siege. You need to take it seriously. Siege is laid against us, he says in verse 1. But the Hebrew is much more direct. It's more literally, he has set a siege against us, and the he is God. You see, Micah is reminding the people of Judah that they are still under the judgment of God, that this army that surrounds the city is God's doing. He has brought the Assyrians to come in and to bring judgment against the city. But on this occasion, God's mercy will extend to the people and the Assyrians won't come in. But Micah doesn't tell them that. Micah simply tells them, you need to get ready. God has announced judgment against you for your sins and you need to take it seriously and prepare for this siege. But in verse 2, God himself speaks. And in your English Bible, as you read it, you might not see quotation marks here. Some versions have them, some versions don't. But God himself speaks here directly. Micah warns the people, and of course it is God's word to the people through Micah, but God himself directly speaks in verse 2. He announces to them the hope that is coming. But it's not what you would expect. You see, in verse 2, he addresses the city of Bethlehem. You would expect at this moment that God would show up and announce hope to Jerusalem. He'd say, oh, Jerusalem, I'm going to send a ruler to rescue you. But no, it's not Jerusalem that is the object of God's address, but this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. The whole book of Micah can actually be sketched as a tale of two cities. In one sense, the story of the whole Bible can be sketched as a tale of two cities. Usually, the two cities that are being told about in the Bible are Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon usually represents the bad guys, and Jerusalem represents the good guys. But in this particular instance, Jerusalem actually represents the bad guys. And the tale of two cities is not Jerusalem versus Babylon, but Jerusalem versus Bethlehem. It's very unexpected. So let's see this announcement of hope in verse 2. This is the verse that's so familiar to us because Matthew quotes it in his gospel and talks about Jesus in these terms. So let's see what it says in its original context. God speaks. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So, we might expect you, Jerusalem, but no, it's you, Bethlehem, this insignificant city. 
This town, whose name means house of bread, whose first mention in the Bible is back in the book of Genesis, simply to tell where Jacob's wife, Rachel, was buried. She was buried near Ephrathah, Genesis 38 tells us. Ephrathah is the original name of this town, it seems, and it means fruitful. So here he puts the old name together with its newer name from Micah's perspective, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the fruitful house of bread. And he addresses this insignificant town, this small backwoods place that no one would expect anything good to come from. And he says, it's from you that will come forth for me, for Yahweh, for the Lord, a ruler in Israel. Not from Jerusalem, not from the temple, not from David's palace, but from this little town of Bethlehem. But in the final line, he describes this ruler who is coming. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, many folks look at that line, and they see it as a reference to the Messiah's eternal origin, that he is eternal. And that is true. He is. The Bible tells us in a number of places that the Son of God who would be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world, is eternal. He has existed always. But it seems more likely that this line is pointing in a slightly different direction. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, is simply to say his lineage goes way back to something really, really important and was prophesied long, long ago. And God doesn't come right out and say it directly here, but he seems to be pointing out that this ruler is going to come from the line of David, that his heritage goes back to the very beginning of Israel's proper monarchy, and he is going to be that Davidic king that the Bible speaks so much about, the one who we know, in fact, is Jesus. But here and now, in Micah's day, in the face of the siege, when it looks like all hope is lost, It looks like God's judgment is going to come, breaking down the walls and annihilating the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. There's this announcement of hope. But it seems so distant. This ruler is going to come? Well, when is he going to come? Is he going to come right now? Because the army's here right now. But no, he is going to come later. And yet, this is their true hope. Not an army that would come to save them. Not some other force that would overcome the Assyrians. That's not the hope that God wants to draw their attention to. Instead, it is the descendant of David, the great king who would come to right all wrongs and to set all things in their proper place. And so Micah elaborates on this and continues to describe this ruler who is to come in terms of a shepherd. If you look at verses 3 to 5, he's going to describe this ruler who is going to come and shepherd God's people. He's going to restore God's people, and he's going to be their shepherd. Look at what he says in verse 3. Micah speaks again here, Micah the prophet. Micah's heard this word from from God in verse 2, this announcement of great hope. And so he, Micah, elaborates on it. Therefore... In light of what God has just said about this ruler from Bethlehem, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That first line in verse 3, you've got to figure out who's he talking about here. You've got a bunch of pronouns And you've got to think about who's being referred to. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Who's he? Who's giving them up? Well, it's Yahweh. It's God who's giving them up to judgment. The people are under his judgment, even as he extends mercy to them on this occasion. They remain under God's judgment until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, here we might be tempted to see a reference to Mary, the woman who gave birth to the baby Jesus that we celebrate during the season of Advent. But the reference to someone being in labor and giving birth is something Micah's already talked about in an earlier announcement. And I want you to look back at this in chapter 4. On a different occasion, Micah speaks to these Jewish people and he mocks them. They're groaning in the face of God's judgment, but Micah mocks their groaning. And he announces that they're going to go into exile, that God has announced his judgment. They will go into exile in Babylon. But he also promises to save them and restore them. Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So Micah is addressing the Jewish people here. He says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So Micah pictures the people of Israel as this woman in labor, as is so often done in the Old Testament. This woman experiencing these labor pains is a picture of the experience of being under the judgment of God, being in exile in Babylon. But the exile is going to produce something, and that's where Micah turns in chapter 5. This ruler will come from the people of Israel. That's the point. Yes, indeed, he would be born from the Virgin Mary, one of these Jews. But the point is that he is going to be among the people. He's going to be a man from the people of Israel, from among their own stock, who comes from these people who are under the judgment of God. These people who have no hope. And yet... This ruler is going to rise from this insignificant place called Bethlehem. And he's going to become their shepherd, the shepherd of his people. After he's born, when she who is in labor has given birth, that's when their judgment will end. That's when God will stop giving them up to their enemies. And then after that, Micah says, the rest of his brothers, the brothers of the ruler, the brothers of this shepherd shall return to the people of Israel. 
This is a picture of the restoration of the people, the coming back of the people, the coming back together of the people of Israel. God's faithful people becoming whole again after they've been broken because of their sin, broken because of their idolatry, broken because of God's judgment. His brothers will return. Notice how he calls them that. Now, when we think about Jesus here, because we should be still thinking about Jesus here, we know from the New Testament that Mary, his mother, had other sons after him. He had physical brothers. But that's not the only way the New Testament talks about the brothers of Jesus. Jesus himself, perhaps you remember, on an occasion in his ministry when he was out teaching, some people came to him and said, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And they were talking about Mary and his other brothers, his family members, her other sons. And what did he say to them? He said, these are my mother and my brothers. He referred to the people who were following him. His followers are his brothers. And there are a couple of other places in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews in particular, that talks about Christians, talks about us as being Jesus' brothers. And so, in a glimpse here, we already see that the restoration of the people of Israel that's announced in conjunction with the birth of this ruler, the birth of this shepherd, must be bigger than just the people of Israel the ethnic people of Israel. And we see that even coming down into verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. Well, who is the flock of this ruler? Well, here in this context, in Micah 5, it's his brothers. But if you remember Jesus' teaching in John chapter 10, when he talked about himself being the good shepherd, he talked about his sheep that he was going to gather, and he was talking about the people of Israel. He was talking about the Jewish people. And then he said, I have other sheep, and I must bring them also. He was talking about Gentiles. He was talking about non-Jews coming together with Jews so that there would be one flock since there is one shepherd. We are united together as his flock. But that's actually where Micah even continues to give us a picture here. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now, at that time, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And so he's not simply the shepherd of the people who live in that little plot of land in the Middle East. He's the shepherd of his flock that extends to the ends of the earth. His greatness extends to the ends of the earth because he is the ruler of the ends of the earth. Perhaps you remember the promise in Psalm 2 to the descendant of David. He says, ask of me. He's saying, you, the Messiah, the descendant of David, ask of me, God. Ask of me and I will give you the nations the ends of the earth as your heritage. And Micah picks that up here. And he's announcing that that's exactly what's going to happen. This ruler is going to draw together his people into one. And it's going to be made up of the Jews, 
and all other peoples who will come. The beginning of verse 5 in Micah 5 should really be the end of verse 4. And he shall be their peace. Whose peace? Everybody's peace to the ends of the earth. Peace among all peoples. Peace between Jew and Gentile. Peace between man and God. This is the ruler who will be peace embodied. Just as Pastor Ken last week showed us from the New Testament that Jesus is our hope, so also he is our peace. Peace embodied. He will bring peace and he will settle his people to be at peace. Micah's next turn in this passage is a little strange and very difficult to understand. In the rest of verse 5 and on into verse 6, he speaks of more shepherds. He speaks of a bunch of shepherds and not just one. And so he seems to envision that this one ruler who's, com- who's coming is going to have, for lack of a better term, under-shepherds who are going to provide protection against the enemies of God. Look at what he says. It is very strange. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Here's what I think Micah is doing. Micah's looking at the threat at hand. He's standing there among the people of Judah in Jerusalem as the siege is being laid from the Assyrians. And so the threat he sees with his own eyeballs is the Assyrian. That's who's at the door right now. That's the danger, the threat against God's people. That's the enemy he can see with his eyes. And so he grabs hold of that. But I think he envisions all enemies of God's people. All enemies of God himself. Those who come against God's people are essentially embodied in the threat at hand. The Assyrian. And I think it can be extended out to all enemies of God's people. So he's picturing a time after the shepherd has come. He's picturing a time after the shepherd has established peace, and yet there's still a threat. There's still danger. What will they do? How will they deal with the threat? It says, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men. This, I think, is a figure of speech. You've probably seen it before, if you remember from the book of Proverbs, for example. We have this little poetic form. They'll talk about three and then four. Three and then four. The book of Amos does the same kind of thing several times. And it's simply a poetic way of saying a whole bunch with sometimes an emphasis on the last one. But here, the number is seven and eight for whatever reason. But I don't think he's got in mind seven or eight particular individuals. It's a figure of speech. It's a strange one to our ears, at least, but it's pretty common in the biblical world. Referring to seven shepherds and eight princes of men is simply a way of saying there's going to be a bunch of them. The Lord will raise up shepherds who are going to do what? Verse 6. They are going to shepherd the land of Assyria, the threat at hand, with the sword. 
Now again, I think he's using the threat at hand, the Assyrian. If they're going to have protection against the Assyrian, they would expect it to be with military force, the sword. We need a sword. We need weapons to protect ourselves from the threat that's come against us. We'll see in just a minute how I think that gets extended over when we look at some of the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. So I want to move on from this for just a bit. Notice the key thought here, though, in Micah's mind. It's not these shepherds. That's not really the point. They are going to do this shepherding with the sword. Notice at the end of verse 6, he goes back to the first shepherd, the ruler. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. So the key thought is that this ruler is going to bring protection to his people through the work of others. He's going to use under-shepherds, if you will, to protect his people. That's the key thought, I think. Now, if this announcement from Micah the prophet to these Jews in Jerusalem is supposed to announce hope in the worst of times, as I think it did, when we look at the fulfillment that's given to us in the New Testament, we find that the fulfillment of this prophecy results in the best of times. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to see some of this fulfillment. Matthew chapter 2 is where we'll begin. The ruler has been born. Matthew chapter 2 is the famous one that we're most familiar with. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. This is one page of the Christmas story. Matthew 2 verses 1 to 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, pause there for just a minute. Notice something I think we tend to overlook. Most of the time we talk about the star of Bethlehem. We talk about how it leads the wise men to the baby in Bethlehem. And eventually it does. But notice that at first, they see the star, but they don't go to Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem first. They go to Jerusalem and say, where is he supposed to be born? The star didn't tell us that. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you've been paying attention you'll notice that that's not exactly the way it reads in Micah 5.2. It's a little bit different. Basically, these scribes have taken Micah 5, 1 through 6, the whole passage, and kind of summarized the point. They got the main piece here. Bethlehem is the place. But then they brought in this language of the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was an important feature of this prophecy that they wanted to bring out. So we have evidence here that at least some Jews in this time period read Micah 5 and recognized that it was talking about the birth of the Messiah. So that is one aspect of the fulfillment. The ruler has come. He's been born. 
That's what we see here. The ruler has been born in Bethlehem, as the prophet said. Now flip to Ephesians chapter 2 to see another element of the fulfillment of this prophecy as the New Testament writers talk about it. Peace has come. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Paul the Apostle writes, For he himself, that is Jesus the Messiah, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If you remember from Ephesians 2, this is Paul's great statement about peace in the body of Christ. And his focus is Jew and Gentile together with God. That's his big point in Ephesians 2 and on into chapter 3. And he highlights this. And I think he's quoting that first line of Micah 5.5 to say that this ruler who would come is our peace. Whose peace? The peace of all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, together. But what is peace? It is the peace of Christmas. It's the peace that Christmas is really about. No more hostility. No more hostility between God and us, and no more hostility between Jew and Gentile in Christ. God has established peace through Jesus the Messiah, through his death specifically. When we think about the birth of Jesus, we dare not stop there and simply celebrate his birth. His birth was always leading to his death. He became a man so that he could die as a man. And in his death, he has broken down the hostility between Jew and Gentile and between God and man. No matter what separates us or distinguishes us, no matter what differences we have, they don't matter anymore if we're in Christ. We are united. Nothing separates us from God and nothing should separate us from each other. And that's Paul's point here. He's showing the fulfillment of Micah's great announcement of the birth of this ruler. But there's one more piece that I think comes out about these other shepherds that I believe in some measure of, is, uh, is some measure of fulfillment of this shepherding language. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Micah looks at the work of this great shepherd in bringing peace, and then he pictures the reality that there's still going to be hostility. There's still going to be enemies. There will still be danger and threats to the people of God. And the remedy that's announced in Micah is that the great shepherd, the ruler who would come from Bethlehem, is going to work through other shepherds to protect the people of God. And I think Paul is picking up on this in Acts chapter 20. You probably remember the context. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Ephesus, just on the coast, and he meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus, the elders he had appointed for the church of Ephesus, and he talks with them. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 32. Look at what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul warns them of the danger that is to come. Micah talked about the Assyrian who was threatening the people of Judah. Here, Paul warns of people coming up from our own ranks, from among us, from among the elders even, who would come as fierce wolves to destroy God's people, to destroy the flock of God. And so he challenges them to shepherd the church, to care for them, to protect them from this harm, from being led astray from the truth. And how does he call them to do that? That's what I think he's saying in verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. The imagery that Micah used was shepherd the Assyrian with the sword. Now that's certainly not the way the elders do their shepherding in the church. We don't use the sword of military might, but we do use the sword of the word of God. And so he says here, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. This is the tool, as it were, that elders should use to protect the people of God, to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. If you are built up by the Word of God, the Word of God's grace specifically, you have a wall that protects you against being led astray. It is the Word of God, the Word of God's grace that protects from deception and harm within, from within or from without. And so the charge to elders among the church, I believe, is some measure of fulfillment of this prophecy that we speak of at Christmas. The work of elders is to continue the shepherd's work of keeping the flock of God safe from harm. And so that is their joyful duty. So to conclude, we have here a tale of two cities. You see, when we think about the Christmas story, and we read the Christmas story from Luke's Gospel especially, we get a certain impression about the city of David. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. What's weird about that is that the phrase city of David, if you were to just go home and do a search in your Bible, in the Old Testament, you'd find that the phrase city of David comes up 45 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to Jerusalem, never Bethlehem. So this is very weird that Luke would here tell us that the city of David is being called Bethlehem. That's very strange. But if we consider the larger context of the book of Micah, we can actually see that there really was a tale of two cities in the background of his thinking. The city of Jerusalem remains under God's judgment. The ruler who will bring peace to Jerusalem and peace to God's people cannot come from Jerusalem. 
because Jerusalem is under God's judgment. Micah 1.5 tells us that. And if you read the whole book of Micah, you'd see it repeatedly. But Micah 1.5 says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem had become a high place. It had become the center of idolatry, not the center of God's true worship. They had turned the temple into an idol itself. The reality is that even up to Jesus' day and even up to our day today, Jerusalem remains under God's judgment. Consider Galatians 4.25. Paul is drawing on the story of Hagar and Sarah from the book of Genesis, and he says this, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, that city you can plot on a map in the Middle East, for she is in slavery with her children. Slavery is a picture of being under the judgment of God. Slavery is what your reality is when you are outside of Christ. When you are under the judgment of God, you are in slavery. And that is true of the people of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem in Paul's day and certainly still today. For those citizens of Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, who reject Jesus. Therefore, the ruler cannot come from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is under God's judgment. And so God brings the ruler from Bethlehem instead. But that still doesn't tell us why Bethlehem. We've got to consider David's greater descendant to see why Bethlehem. What we've seen so far tells us why not Jerusalem, which is not really what we're interested in at the end of the day. So let me give three kind of reasons that I think I can pull from Scripture appropriately that might get at the answer of why Bethlehem. It is fitting. It is fitting that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem for these three reasons. First, the Messiah was to be David's greater descendant. Perhaps you remember the story from Matthew 22, 42 to 45. The day before Jesus is crucified, he has an argument with the scribes. He actually picks this argument himself. He raises the question, whose son is the Christ supposed to be? And they answer correctly, David's son, David's descendant. And then he poses a question that they cannot answer. Why then does David say, and he quotes Psalm 110.1, he says to them, Why does David say, Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. How is the Messiah David's son if he is David's Lord? And they're stumped. The son of David would be his Lord. He would be greater than David. Thus, in order to establish that connection, it's fitting that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because David was born in Bethlehem. What else can we say? Could it have something to do with God's unexpected way of salvation? In 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. The little town of Bethlehem? even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
It's, fast, it's fascinating to me that in the Bible, there are two Bethlehems. Both of them are relatively insignificant until the Messiah is born in one of them. But today, there are somewhere around 40 cities called Bethlehem around the world. Its significance has greatly increased because we look at it now very differently from the way it was originally defined. And I wonder if the world has kind of missed the point. It's very significance that the Messiah was, has now been born there was because of its insignificance, because it was a no-account town. It didn't matter. Nothing great happened in Bethlehem, except David was born there. But even when the tribes of Israel were allotted their territory, and Judah is allotted their territory, and so many great cities are mentioned, Bethlehem is not mentioned initially. It's so unimportant throughout the Scriptures, and yet God chose to bring the Messiah from there totally unexpectedly. So much so that even though we have evidence in Matthew that some Jews believe that Micah was pointing to the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem, that's not common in ancient Jewish thinking. Most Jews didn't think the Bible told where the Messiah was to be born. They saw Micah 5 as talking about something else entirely. But some seem to have recognized the truth as it turns out. But this is not the way they would have expected God to work. They would have expected Him to come from Jerusalem, to be born near the temple, to be born maybe in David's own palace. But no, He was born in Bethlehem. Finally, it's fitting that the bread of life would come from the house of bread. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And Jesus famously refers to himself as the bread of life in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's what Christmas is really all about. The bread of life has come. God has given bread that gives eternal life. And the bread is his own son. And there's no other way to have life than coming to him. Thirsting and hungering are things that we do every single day. And we go to the kitchen and satisfy ourselves so easily. But there is a hunger and there is a thirst that goes deeper. There's a hunger and a thirst that can only be satisfied by Jesus himself. And it's the hunger and thirst that's related to our guilt and our slavery to sin and death. It is the breaking of the bread of life that provides our redemption from slavery. As we celebrate the birth of our Redeemer, we remember that He was indeed born to die, as one of my favorite Christmas songs says it. The breaking of the bread of life, the crucifixion of the Redeemer from Bethlehem, paid the price that set sinners free from slavery. You can receive this life, this bread of life, this bread that gives eternal life freely, without you having to pay anything at all. Christmas is a perfect time to begin a relationship with Jesus. If you're longing for peace this Christmas season, know this, friend. You cannot experience true peace apart from Jesus. The baby in the manger grew up to live a perfect human life, fully obedient to God, without any sin or failure, 
And He died to pay the penalty for sins we commit. God then raised Him from the dead, showing to the world that He was pleased with Jesus, that He didn't deserve to die, and that He accepted Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of sinners. We who do deserve to die under God's righteous judgment. Jesus now sits on the throne of the universe, continuing continuing to offer eternal life to sinners. You can begin to experience eternal life, new life, by beginning to trust Jesus today. A life of eternal peace. Peace with God and peace with others. And even peace within yourself. It's a Christmas miracle. While Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, paying for crimes he did not commit, in A Tale of Two Cities, one of the main characters, Sidney Carton, was executed by a French guillotine, dying in the place of a man who was guilty of treason. Sorry for spoiling the ending if you haven't read it. The author of the book, Charles Dickens, imagines what Carton might have written down as any last words to end the book on a more hopeful tone. Allow me to quote a few of those lines to close out this message. Hear how they line up with what we know of our Savior, Jesus. Listen for the biblical echoes. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the peace that you have accomplished, achieved, won in the death of your Son. Thank you for even these announcements, these prophetic announcements, hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on this planet, recorded in Scripture for the generations of humanity to look back on and to see the proof, to see the evidence, to see the grand plan laid out on the pages of this book. We marvel at what you've done. Thank you, Father, for bringing peace into a world that is still at war with itself. We experience all too much the strife and the hostility and the conflict that is ongoing. Would you help us, your children, your people, be peacemakers, be people of peace, who enjoy the peace that you've provided, who experience it in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our communities? Would you help us not to stir up strife, to pursue conflict, to fan the flames of hostility in this world? Oh, Father, let us douse them with the water of your peace. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for this season where we can celebrate him openly and eagerly and joyfully. Fill us up with that joy. Fill us up even with the experiential peace that comes from knowing that you are no longer our enemy. You are our friend. You have made us your friends. Thank you, Father, for being willing to love your enemies and to even send your son to die for your enemies. Father, thank you. We rejoice in the work that you do as you bring life. You give it so freely. It costs so much. 
but it costs us nothing. And so we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to be in the dark. Hopefully you guys can see okay. Um, so we do have the opportunity today, uh, as I said, from our singing service, so maybe some of you weren't there and didn't hear, uh, but we are going to be able to uh, celebrate a baptism today. Uh, before we do that, uh, I just want to say a few words about baptism. I won't take too long. Uh, I think most of you, if you've been in our body, have seen baptism before here. Um, and maybe, though, to some of you, it might look a little different than what you might expect or what you know of in your history, in your past. Um, as we baptize here, uh, we believe that the Bible is very clear, that baptism uh, does not save a person in the sense of it does not give them eternal life. Uh, the act in and of itself does not give the hope or the peace or any of those other things we're going to talk about during Advent. We only receive true salvation uh, as we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Justin just talked about uh, and that we choose to, to believe and follow Jesus. That is the only way that we find true eternal life that will last forever, true peace, true joy, true hope, and that only comes through Jesus. And so when we do a baptism here, uh, I know there are some churches that it almost is like a magic trick. This is not magic. This is not saving anyone. You are not literally being washed from your sins by going into the water and coming out of the water. What it is, it is a symbol of what Jesus has already done for the person being baptized. Maybe you've heard this used before. Uh, I remember hearing it said that baptism is almost like a wedding ring. Just because this ring isn't what marries me to my wife. I am married to my wife by the covenant that we made together. However, this ring is a symbol of that covenant that we made. And in a very real way, that's how baptism is. It is a symbol that someone has given their life to Jesus, has chosen to die to their old self, is, a symbol, is symbolized by going under the water, like being buried to your old life, and then rising again to new life that we would be told in Romans 6. New, the newness of life as we are resurrected to, into being a new person spiritually. We are dead before we know Jesus, and through his power, we are given life. And that is what baptism is symbolizing. That is what it is here to show us. And in just a minute, Tyler is going to come, and he is going to profess his faith through baptism. And it's an opportunity for you as the church body and as his friends and family to celebrate with him the commitment that he has already made to Jesus to follow him with his life and to 
to receive the peace and the joy and the hope that can only come through Jesus. And it's an opportunity also at our church, as you'll see, there is, we do fully immerse. And again, it's the picture of dying to self and living to new life that Jesus gives. And so that's why we baptize. We are commanded that we should go and not only make disciples of all the nations, but to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we do here at this church, and we believe it's the biblical thing to do. But again, this is not going to give any special salvation. This is simply a symbol. And I want to say, before we have Tyler come in, if any of you are in a place where you have given your life to Jesus, where you have committed to him, and you have received the peace and the hope and the joy that comes only through Jesus, and you haven't followed him in baptism, you haven't obeyed what Jesus says by go and be baptized to show what God, Christ has done in your life, then you, we would invite you to do that, to take this opportunity as you see someone else being baptized to say, yes, I would like the same thing. And you can simply come and talk to me or Justin or any elder, and we would love to, to connect you with who you need to be connected with so that you can be baptized as well. Uh, usually it takes a, a little bit of time between your wanting to and getting it done, but we would love to do that with you. And so with all that being said, I want to invite Tyler Billings down into the, to the uh, tank with me here. The water is warm. We don't have cold water here. All right, so um, especially in the middle of the winter, we're, we're thankful we're not doing this in the river, although, you know, we could if we wanted to, but this is much better. Um, so this is Tyler Billings. Some of you may know Tyler. I know some of you are going to have trouble seeing him through the pulpit, but, you know, he's here, I promise. Um, Tyler uh, is Denise, Denise's son, the go-downs uh, nephew, um, and he's been attending our church for quite a while now. He's been helping in the sound booth. He's been around. You've probably seen him. Uh, and uh, he has been changed by Jesus. As I've talked to him over the last couple weeks, he is pursuing membership. That will be happening next week. Uh, but in that process of pursuing membership, realized he needed to be baptized. He needed to show publicly what Christ has done in his life. And, and part of what we do when we do a baptism is we ask the person being baptized to share a few words of what, what Jesus has done and how Jesus has changed their life. And so... Uh, now I'm just going to give Tyler a few moments. Normally they write it down, but he said he wants to go from his heart. So we'll, we'll, we'll enjoy listening to what Christ has done in Tyler's heart. So I'm just going to let him go ahead and share now. Thank you, Pastor Ken. So I was actually uh, baptized as a baby. Um, I don't remember that. It's a good thing because I was actually wearing a dress that day. <laughs> Uh, I was uh, I attended the Trinity Lutheran Church in Wellsville, New York, uh, growing up as a kid uh, with my mother and father and Grandma and Grandpa Collins, and that was the building block of my faith. I went through two years of confirmation school, and I always looked forward to Sundays. Uh, we would get up early, we would get coffee and donuts, go to church, I'd go to Sunday school, uh, and then we'd get coffee and donuts afterwards. So it was always something to look forward to. And, you know, growing up, it was Sundays became a uh, family tradition. Uh, during my adolescent years, we uh, kind of stopped going, and I, you know, really kind of lost faith. Uh, and then when I graduated high school, I uh, really had a lot of self-doubt and misdirection as to the choices I was making in life. It wasn't until... 2006, uh, I could really see God was 
working in my life, I ended up in Hornell, New York, where I was, uh, where I spent a lot of time with my aunt and uncle, Lori and Ron Godown. And they took me to Hillside Baptist Church. And that is where I met John McDermott and Joe Hess. And they were true disciples and really kind of paved the way for me. I was, uh, they showed me a lot of things. Uh, they introduced me to God and Christ. They not only talked the talk, but they walked the walk very well and were instrumental in my faith. In 2007, I was saved. I moved to Corning and attended Sovereign Grace Ministries. I went to college, and you could see the miracles uh, God was performing in my life. It was uh, really quite something special. I did not follow him, though, but Jesus cared for us. He cares for us so much that he uh, still tries, tries to show us the way. He, uh, he did not give up. And it was in 2015, um, I, uh, well, 2014, I ended up uh, in some very uh, you know, dangerous places and situations. And I was fortunate enough to come back to Hornell. And in 2015, I started attending Alfred Allman Bible Church, where I've met uh, several of you, great, every, everyone here, uh, Pastor Ken, um, and a lot of people from Hillside Baptist uh, are here as well. Uh, it was, uh, and it's been amazing. And this time, I uh, am following Christ. I am trying to walk in His footsteps, and I, uh, I, I truly feel the miracles being performed uh, by, by God. And one of the verses that stuck out was Proverbs ten three. Uh, God will not let the righteous famish, but he will cast away the wickedness. And that is something that uh, I feel has uh, lived with me ever since. So that's it. Uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, welcoming me with uh, open hearts. Everyone is amazing. I look forward to coming and uh, getting more involved. The one thing that truly helps us the most uh, is by surrounding ourselves with Christians and uh, people and true believers, so we can continue to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Move right on up to the front. All right. <laughs> no, you're gonna move sideways. That's <laughs> All right. Well, Tyler, first before I before I baptize you, uh, have you have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Yes. Are you committing today to continue to follow him and commit to his ways for the rest of your life? Yes. All right. Well, based on your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm just going to close our service in prayer at this point. But I did want to mention again, like this is a beautiful moment. I want you to, Tyler's going to have to get some time to dry off and change. But once he does, welcome him in this endeavor of his life. He is committing to follow Jesus fully. And that is being seen today by this act. And so would you just encourage him with me? Would you, would you talk with him? Would you encourage him? Would you love on him? 
and continue to do so from this day forward. And then next week, we are going to have the opportunity, as I mentioned, to see not only him, but three others uh, join us as members of our church. And so next week, look forward to that as well, an opportunity to see people commit not only to Jesus, but also to his body, which is always a beautiful thing as well. But until next week, why don't we close in prayer, and then we'll see you then. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity we've had today to hear about the peace that only comes through you. Lord, to see the the changed life of, of a man who's following you. God, would you just continue to lead Tyler? Would you continue to lead all of us to follow you in these hard times, but to only find peace in you and you alone? God, would you do that for us this morning and through our week? Thank you for the reminder this morning of all you are and all that you're doing. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.